and welcome to Cityware Selectors Let's Talk About ESG podcast. I'm Margarita Kirakosin, Deputy Editor, and joining me today is Ashley Hamilton Claxton, Head of Responsible Investments at Royal London Asset Management. Ashley, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Margarita. I know that one of the things that you are very passionate about and working uh, really hard on is the just transition concept. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit in more detail what it means to you and why Royal London Asset Management actually decided to dedicate so much effort to that specific aspect opposite to, I don't know, kind of like environmental transition, et cetera. Yeah, great question. So the just transition is a, a fairly unknown concept until recently in the Paris Agreement. And it was mentioned in the Paris Agreement, but people kind of forgot about it for quite a long time. But to me, it's absolutely essential because the just transit, the, the climate transition that we need to go on is not, so climate change is not an environmental problem. It's a socioeconomic problem because the earth will continue to exist <laughs> without humans on it. Um, so actually what the problem we're trying to fix is Yes, we need to fix the earth, but it's in order, to, in order to kind of save humanity in some ways. So the just transition is this socioeconomic problem to me. And so when I was sort of heading up the team and we were thinking about, okay, what can we do at RLAM to really advance and improve our impact on climate change? And lots of our peers were already doing some amazing work about climate targets and carbon transition and low carbon. And And we felt like the way that I run the team is like, where do we actually have the most impact? Um, we're a small, smallish, medium-ish asset manager. And, um, you know, we're predominantly sort of fixed income with a growing successful equities business. So where can we really make a difference? And what we decided was, is this focusing on this idea of the just transition. And so what the just transition is, is this notion that in order for us to transition society to low carbon economy, we need to bring people along on the journey. So we need to address things like, customers, suppliers, and employees. So for example, I'm Canadian by birth. I grew up um, in Alberta, which is where the oil sands are. I have a lot of family that work in the oil sands on the oil rings. <laughs> um, and the way that we will transition the world to a lower carbon economy is not by putting loads of people out of work. Mm -hmm. You will not win hearts and minds by doing that. And so what we need to do is have a really honest conversation about how do we collectively make this change without making people feel necessarily guilty or bad or shameful, but actually trying to create sort of double benefits or double materiality, double sort of a triple bottom line type things. So that's the key thing is really the just transition is about making the carbon transition, but doing it in a way that is socially just and considers things like good jobs, green jobs, addressing suppliers, addressing things like energy poverty, for example. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a very excellent point. Well, one thing that definitely is worth concentrating on is how this is actually going to happen in a way that when you think about it, yeah, obviously you need to protect the jobs, but then how do you transition towards renewable sources and how is it going to work in practice? Do you just channel people into different sectors, for example, like away from uh, sands and into kind of like wind turbines and et cetera, or uh, there is another way of doing it. So how are you approaching it as an asset manager? So I think the first thing to recognize as an asset manager is we are one wheel in the cog, right? Mm -hmm. So um, at the moment, there's a really interesting dynamic happening in this industry, which 
is potentially quite challenging and risky, which is that people seem to think the asset management industry can solve all the problems. And the reality is we can't, right? So what can we do? So we can, we invest in companies, we invest in their debt, we invest in their equity, and we have influence. So what we've been doing over the last three years is working really proactively with the UK utility sector um, on the just transition. And why do we pick that sector? Well, we picked it because we have big exposure to it through our credit funds. It's a big, big part of the index. Um, it's uh, relatively well sort of secured. We like it from a financial perspective. Um, it's got good cash flows. It's sort of quasi government guaranteed. So it's a great sector from a financial perspective. But it's also a huge sector that has to be at the center of the, tr the transition. Um, so we really have been reaching out to companies that we own to ask them, what can you do to ensure a just transition, to make sure that you're not just closing um, coal-fired power plants and you know, putting huge communities out of work? And what that's led to is a dialogue with companies like SSE, um, so the utility company up, up in sort of the Scot Scottish area, uh, really around how do you transition your business model and how do you bring your employees and your customers along with you? And so we've been doing this sort of proactively for the last three years, really trying to influence and really trying to work with the companies and understand what their challenges are. And um, we've been working with the Friends Provident Foundation on this activity as well. Um, and what we've got to is we've got SSE um, to, to publish, I think, what's the world's first um, climate just transition strategy. Um, and we're working with a number of other UK-based utilities to publish the same strategies ahead of COP26. And that's trying to say to companies, really, this needs to be planned out. You need to plan how you're going to um, transition your employees. <laughs> if you're going to close assets and open other assets, how is that going to happen? How are you going to work with your unions? How are you going to work with your communities? Um, and so trying to get them to think about that in the long term and front run any potential challenges they have. Because the minute you say we're closing this coal fire power plant, you're going to have lots of social opposition to that potentially in that regional area. So how do you front run that? How do you create training exercises and jobs? And how do you um, get people into different types of work? Um, and then, of course, you've got the whole infrastructure around it, which is talk government needs to be there to help transition um, jobs to greener jobs and things like that. But as an asset manager, we can be quite targeted to really work directly with the companies and mm -hmm. get them to think proactively about it. If you could give me a bit more color on uh, that interaction with, with SSE, uh, that yes. would be great because just uh, to see how you're working with them, how they respond it and where you're planning to get them to. Sure. So my, I've got a great team of analysts working for me and they're the ones that do all the hard work. So I definitely do not want to take credit for it. But um we sort of started out on a journey by looking at, by really kind of reaching out and trying to understand from their perspective, like what are the barriers and what are the challenges to creating a just transition? Um, and I've been sort of working in responsible and sustainable investing for 15 years. And I started out my career really working on company engagement, this notion that we go out and we talk to companies. And what I found is the conversation is always much, starts off on a much better footing if you start out from a position of trying to understand. Um, and not trying to criticize or challenge. And there are definitely times when you criticize and challenge, absolutely. But in this case, we know it's a shared collective problem and we know it's the kind of problem that no one knows how to solve. <laughs> we as asset managers don't know how to solve it. The companies and themselves within their own operations don't know how to solve it. 
So we basically, we, we were working with Friends Provident Foundation to undertake a bit of like scoping research just to understand what are each of the utility companies doing? What are their policies? What are their approaches? How are they thinking about decarbonization? How are they thinking about um, the communities where they're operating? And then it just sort of progressed them from there. So with SSE, we've had a really positive dialogue back and forth for, for many, two, three years, I would say. Um, and, and then it becomes actually rather than us going to them, them coming to us. So then when they were drafting their just transition strategy, they were coming back to my analysts and my team and asking for feedback. Um, we've had another utility company who's in the process of who's just published theirs as well. Um, Eon, and they've also um, come back and asked us to comment feedback on their drafts. Um, so it becomes actually a bit of a collaborative exercise where we're, we're trying to give them information. And we're also a bit like bees. We're kind of pollinating the companies because we sort of see what's best practice across the sector. Mm-hmm. We can take that information away, start to share it with the other companies and, and kind of and also I find peer pressure can help. So we can often say, oh, look at yeah. your peer over here is doing this why don't you try something? And, you know, so they quite like, they quite respond to a bit of peer pressure as well, a bit of that competitive edge, I think. Um, So it's been very much a collaboration. We've had some companies we've reached out to that have been certainly less responsive, but that's sort of the nature of engagement. But in the case of SSE, it really was us asking how we could solve the problem together and then collaborating on kind of what ultimately SSE was a really great output from them. Mm -hmm. And what kind of challenges uh, can you foresee already now after the interaction with them? Because obviously, it's all good and nice to set a target, um, especially when it's so far in the future, if you're talking about carbon neutrality by 2050. But then there are multiple caveats to that. So I was wondering, in terms of pitfalls that these companies uh, might face, uh, what are these? I think there's still a real absence of, um, it's getting better, but uh, they don't operate in a vacuum. They operate within government policy. <laughs> um, government policy hasn't always been that clear. Um, it's getting a little bit clearer. And I think we're going to get even more clear in the UK leading up to COP26 and at COP26. And the, certainly the government in the last few months has been um, making some more announcements around sort of green jobs and the green guilt and funding of projects. So I think the more support and certainty from a regulatory environment they can get the better there's some really interesting things that came out of some of our discussions with some of the utilities about long-term investment and sometimes we find that the way that they're regulated by the by the regulator actually stops them from investing for the long term um, and so what we found is there's sort of a mismatch between the historic regulations of utilities um, and how they're kind of uh, utility companies are really kind of forced to um, follow very kind of prescriptive business plans that are kind of almost signed off by great regulators, which actually ties our hands in some ways for from investing for the future. Mm-hmm. So there are some of these like technical challenges where um, we can then help go back and influence and, and try and talk to other to government and to other companies about trying to unblock some of this these challenges. And mm-hmm. um, I was wondering as well, because uh, obviously companies can do uh, a lot, but then when we talk about the ideal situation when it comes to, well, firstly, policymaking, and mm-hmm. secondly, to regulations, if you could 
change the scene tomorrow, let's say, what are the most urgent things that you would love to see done on that level? I think to bring the most clarity and consistency, and I'm no far the climate expert in the business, but um, having a global agreed carbon price of a sufficient uh, quantum is really still quite essential, I think, to actually um, uh, getting companies to actually plan for climate change. Now, some of our investment teams internally have been using their own internal carbon price, and they've been doing some modeling, for example, on uh, the impact of those car- what a carbon price could be on, on those different companies. And that does show you some interesting results. But until And a lot of companies themselves that we talk to, oil and gas companies, have their own internal carbon price that they'll use when they're planning their capital expenditures. But it's all voluntary and it's all kind of internal. So I think having a consistent global carbon price would be really useful. Um, and then I think it, when we're talking about things like just transition, you know, government strategies and more localized government strategies, because ultimately the just transition is about local, not global, which is probably what makes it really difficult, just thinking off the top of my head to deal with climate change because climate change is a global nebulous concept, but the impacts are very local. And so getting local authorities, national governments to really um, nail, I guess, the investment that we need to make or the policy or regulatory changes that we need to make in local communities to facilitate just transition. So in the North of Scotland, if we need to close, if the plan is to close, you know, oil and gas production in north of Scotland. What do you do? How do you support those communities? How do you shift that? I think that's really kind of important in a UK context to get right because you need to win the hearts and minds. Otherwise, we're not going to win it. Well, Royal London is the UK-based uh, asset manager and runs a lot of assets uh, in the UK space, be it equities or bonds. Obviously, we see this bigger picture where Europe is seen as the locomotive of all the sustainable regulations mm-hmm. uh, and um, kind of like policy making, etc. But obviously, now that uh, the UK is not part of the EU, questions are. Uh, about how this is going to be compatible. And I was wondering one question for you as a representative of an asset manager based in the UK. Are you paying attention to the things like SFDR? Because for now, it's not obligatory in the UK. And secondly, does it make sense for UK asset managers to actually be a step ahead uh, Mm. of that development? Yeah, um, we absolutely are paying attention to SFDR. If you want to sell into the EU or if you have any Irish or uh, European domiciled funds, and we have Irish domiciled funds, for example, you have to be looking at SFDR. So yes, we're spending a lot of time on it. It's really important. It's probably the leading standard at the moment in terms of sustainable classification of funds, uh, in terms of sustainability and responsible investing. And so because the EU has gone first, it's becoming the default standard, whether we like it or not. So absolutely, we need to pay attention to it and we need to understand it. Clearly, in the UK context, we still need some clarity from the FCA and the UK regulators about equivalency or a different standard. And is that standard going to be materially different or not? And that's, we think that's coming hopefully very, very soon. And until we get that, does create some challenges for us. Um, But 
essentially we think sort of SFDR, although it's quite a complex piece of regulation, I'm sure you've read it. It's, it's not an easy one to digest. And um, it's come so rushed. Um, just yesterday, I think they've, they've announced that they are postponing the implementation of the level two text, um, which takes the pressure off massively because the timeline between agreeing it and implementing it has been extremely rapid to the point where um, it you know can create lots of unintended consequences that are quite actually potentially quite negative for for customers. Um, so we're treating SFDR as like the currently the only standard out there um, as probably the gold standard, even though it's got loads of problems with it. And we're kind of waiting with interest to see what the FCA decides to do. And we're, we're working with the Investment Association and, and our peers as well to try and understand and influence that. Because the reality is, even though we're a UK asset manager, um, asset management, as you know, Margarita is really kind of, is quite a global industry, even though we are quite a UK firm, you know, we absolutely need to be operating within a global context going forward. And so, um, you know, making sure there's alignment. So I sit on the sustainability committee at the investment association and all of my colleagues and all of my competitor companies, they all want to see some sort of alignment from the FCA with SFDR, because if we don't, if we go different directions, it's going to get really complicated really quickly. And the result of that is it just creates costs for our customers for our and pension savers. And ultimately that's what we're doing this for, right? It's the pension savers on the street who want to retire into a decent income and a decent standard of living. And so we need to keep costs down while being really responsible in how we kind of approach the regulatory landscape. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned that amendment that was just introduced into the SFDR framework. Mm. So can you walk me through it and why it was uh, such an important thing to actually extend that timeline a bit further into the future? Yeah, so they came out, uh, again, I'm not the regulatory expert, but they basically came out with the level one text, which was the high level principles. And there were loads of principal regulations and the few disclosures that we had to have in place by March of this past year, 2021. And then there was a level two text, which goes into a lot more detail, predominantly on disclosures. So it's sustainable finance disclosures regulation. So it's really all about disclosures. And the key thing in that is we now, for any fund that's regulated in the EU, we have to classify it into one of three buckets. Article six, which we see as ESG integration. Article eight, which we'd see as ESG promoting or ESG characteristics. And then article nine, which is sustainable outcomes or sustainability or impact investing. We have to classify our funds, which we've done. And then the level two text, which is the text that's been delayed six months, is about disclosing 15 to 30 different indicators for every fund and at the entity level. So things like the carbon emissions, which is fairly simple, but other things are like, what's the diversity? What's the gender pay gap? various 15 various metrics that we all have to disclose at the fund level and actually just the technical challenge of buying that data and the data's average quality (laughs) and pretty non-existent for fixed income frankly buying the data ingesting the data building the systems to be able to then collate that data for every single fund and then to publish that data for every single fund, and then also to aggregate the data up to the RLAM entity level, that just technical challenge to build that capability in less than six months when we only just saw the level two text come out a few months ago 
was just a huge monumental ask on the asset management industry and created a lot of cost um, of a lot of people running around trying to figure out how they actually technically do that. So it does give us, we're not taking our foot off the pedal. Um, We still have a lot of work to do and and we're absolutely doing it, but that um, a bit of a reprieve in terms of the timing of when we need to have all of this in place. Ashley, you mentioned rising costs, especially when it concerns data and disclosures. I was wondering, well, the consensus in the industry is that asset managers have to take it. They can't charge the clients, no one else uh, as well. Um, So I was wondering from the perspective of an asset manager, how to handle this whole kind of like increase in cost? Yeah, um, it's just a cost of doing business now. I think everyone accepts that. Um, The level of scrutiny, scrutiny, the level of... um, Disclosure requirements we have from our clients has just gone up um, as complexity has gone up. So I think we're treating it as just a business as usual, um, but is something that we have to absorb. And ultimately, you know, we definitely aren't charging our customers in the sense of, um, you know, charging funds or anything like that. But uh, that basically, it just means that sort of like cost to serve within the whole industry is going up to to be able to disclose and communicate um, all of this information to our clients in a, in a way, and we need to do it in a way that, that they can understand. I think that's the, that's the mm-hmm. other key thing. Like it's one thing we can just push out a bunch of data that's sort of meaningless, but that's not the point of the regulations. The point is really to disclose something that's meaningful to our end clients. And that's what we're working really hard on. Mm-hmm. One thing that I was wondering about is obviously there is a lot being done in the UK, a lot is being done in Europe. Um, the US is also catching up uh, and mm. there is a lot of interesting um, kind of like movement going on in there, specifically on the oil and uh, gas majors. Mm. Some very groundbreaking things are being pushed through that they have never expected are going to be get, like be done, really. So from your mm. perspective, what is one standout thing that you've noticed in recent months that you would like to bring up? Yeah, I mean, the US is interesting because um, they are behind on some of the regulatory fronts, um, but that doesn't mean nothing is happening. So investors have absolutely been on it. Uh, They've been on it for a very long time. So the US operates quite differently from the Europe and the UK where shareholder proposals are quite an important part of um, getting companies to consider issues and think about things. And Shareholders have been filing shareholder proposals for years and years and years about climate change. Um, and those uh, climate those proposals will be getting more and more and more support. I think what's been groundbreaking this year has been ExxonMobil, one of the largest oil and gas companies in the world, has lost a proxy contest from an activist investor who has now installed three climate experts on their board. I mean, this is, to me... Absolutely groundbreaking. This has never happened in the US. Um, and it's really significant for shareholders. It's really significant message to companies as well, like um, systematically, systemically important companies like ExxonMobil, that they need to listen to shareholders. And ExxonMobil had been just basically ignoring shareholders on the climate issue for years. And the result is that they've shareholders have decided they're going to install a bunch of climate experts on their board. So I think it sends a really interesting signal, particularly to US companies, that they really can't drag their feet because there actually is this reality that the shareholders might take back a bit of control. Um, So that's been a fascinating dynamic to watch. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Um, 
I was wondering as well, actually, because Royal London focuses so much on fixed income, and fixed income is a slightly different uh, area of rule, like well, mm. much diff- much the different area from equities. So, from a perspective of the fixed income investor, um, ESG issues that come to the fore other. Are they any different or maybe even more pressing than on the equity side? Yeah, so we have been historically a fixed income house and we definitely have a growing successful equities arm. Um, but when I when I started, we definitely started working with a fixed income team um, this is about eight years ago. And what what and I kind of came very much from an equities perspective. And what really struck me when I when I started speaking to the credit team in rural London is just how different credit is. You cannot apply an equity lens to these things. So if I give you an example, um, you know, we own a bond called First Hydro. And First Hydro is basically an electric power plant in Wales. And so if you if you looked at the kind of carbon or ESG profile of First Hydro, you get a very interesting picture. First Hydro is owned by NG which is a sort of French energy utility company. And NG's got a mix of different um, things in it. They own, you know, they own coal and they own nuclear and they own all sorts of other things. The thing with ESG data is it's not very granular to fixed income. So in a bond like First Hydro, the data you'd probably get through from your third-party provider would be NG data. So you'd get like the carbon footprint of NG. <laughs> and like as a fixed income investor, like I'll give that to my fund manager and be like, that doesn't make any sense because I'm not investing in NG. <laughs> NG just happens to own the issuer that's issuing the bond, but the bond is actually secured on the physical assets of the electric um, power plant, the hydropower plant. And so those nuances of fixed income are absolutely essential if you're actually going to do it properly and understand where where the actual risk lies and how that risk would actually translate into um, a financial impact. So the other unique factor about fixed income is, whereas in equities, there's like a, you know, like there's an upside and a downside. In fixed income, there's only downside risk. You get no upside. So that's really important. And then the other really important thing is the way that we like to invest is really having really strong covenants or legal protections over our position. So in the First Hydro example, for example, we've got if 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 the issuer defaults and can't pay us our coupon, we actually can take some control over the actual physical asset. And so the financial impact is different mm-hmm. when you have you know security of, over assets, or if you have strong legal protections in the form of covenants. The translation of the ESG risk into the financial risk is quite different than it would be for an equity. And so that to us is the specialism that we bring as a response investment team in RLM, working with credit investors to really tease out the, the details matter in credit. Maybe I could summarize it in one sentence. The, de- the details matter much more in credit, I think, than they might do in equities. Mm-hmm. Another development that I've been watching closely over the last uh, couple of weeks is the emergence of um, transitions themed credit funds, for example, uh, in the asset management space. And whilst I understand the rationale and it's kind of like all very hot and now <laughs> of the moment, uh, 
I also have certain misgivings about how uh, doable that is to have the strategy that aims for transition, but then might be for the time being investing in all the big, all the big uh, polluters, let's say. So where do you stand on kind of like, well, either designing transition theme strategies or even kind of like that concept and how workable it is to just kind of like rely on the fact that these companies will clean up their act eventually? Yeah, very live debate internally as well. Um, and I think it is really important that we remember we're not going to get to a low carbon economy without lots of people taking lots of actions and transitioning their business models. And the transitioning of the business models will have to happen over time. And so we think that investing in those companies that are willing and able to transition their business model is a compelling proposition. And we would, we would rather allocate our capital to companies that are willing and able to transition and work with them on that transition um, than allocate capital to, to companies that are either unwilling or unable or both. So it is, I think, really important because we're not going to solve climate change by everyone investing in the most squeaky green assets. There has to be that middle ground of investing in the light brown assets that need to get better. Um, and the key thing for us will is going to have to be checking in on those milestones about is the company getting better or not? And, and what, what reasonable influence can we have over their strategy? And how can we influence their future behavior? And if we don't feel that they're um, transitioning, within a transitions fund, for example, we will have to think about exiting or reducing our position. Mm -hmm. And I guess one important question is how to understand that the transition is not possible. So when do you, where do you draw the line uh, on the fact that it's actually out of their reach, the way things are looking at the moment? So we're developing some really interesting tools internally to actually measure exactly that. So we are develop we have a climate score internally that we are, it's in beta and we're about to sort of press the button to get it start to work on our systems. And it's trying, it's taking several climate factors to measure the ability to transition. And then we have several factors to measure willingness. So things, willingness is things like, you know, responsiveness to climate, uh, to um, shareholders, um, you know, have they put out statements about their carbon transition? How realistic is there, are their statements? So trying to measure those things. So we, we think we can do it. Absolutely. We're putting together a score and a model to measure it. Mm -hmm. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Mm -hmm.